Hello, and welcome to another episode of EdChoice Chats. My name is Mike McShane, and I'm Director of National Research at EdChoice. Today's podcast is part of a new series we're embarking upon called Cool Schools, wherein we will profile passionate educators around the country and the schools that they lead. This podcast series has two goals. Uh, The first is simply celebration. Starting a new school or running a great existing school is hard work. Too often, it's a thankless job. So we want to celebrate people who are trying something new and different and kick the tires on their ventures to uncover lessons that they've learned and can share with other educators around the country. The second goal is to try and stretch folks' mind about what is possible in education. As educational choice supporters, we at EdChoice spend a healthy amount of our time trying to promote educational options that don't exist yet. We push for states to pass laws that create the conditions for great new schools to open and scale, but many people struggle to wrap their minds around exactly what that might look like. In this podcast, we're going to highlight some of those potentialities. With quality school choice programs, innovative models like the ones we talk about here could be coming to a city near you. You know, at the outset, I would like to say that uh, we're not going to try and use this podcast to adjudicate whether or not these are quote-unquote good or bad schools. We're not going to examine their reading and math scores and ask them why their fourth graders aren't up to snuff. We are going to ask about mistakes that they've made, lessons they've learned, advice that they would give, and related questions that should be helpful for anyone listening, even if you're skeptical of their educational model or pedagogical strategy. I'm always on the lookout for more cool schools to profile, so if you know of one of those in your neck of the woods, please let me know about it. So on the podcast today, we have Jeff Sandifer, who founded, along with his wife, Laura, Acton Academies. Uh, Before that, he founded or co-founded nine companies, including the multi-billion dollar energy firm Sandifer Capital. Um, He's he's also helped start this Acton School of Business, which is uh, down in Austin, Texas. It's really innovative MBA program. He was named by Business Week as one of the top entrepreneurship professors in America and by The Economist as one of the top business professors in the world, um, which was fascinating. Um, I should say uh, Jeff's wife, Laura, as I said, who was a co-founder of this, has a new book out that's talking about the history of Acton Academy. If you, if this was, uh, or if this is a conversation that you're interested in and you want to get all of the details, the book is called Courage to Grow. How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down. Definitely worth checking into. Um, There's so much stuff going on here. Jeff and I are only going to be able to scratch the surface. So definitely, definitely check that book out. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Acton Academy's Jeff Sandifer. Well, Jeff, it's great to be with you today. I was wondering if we could maybe start at the beginning. So how did Acton Academy and I guess the kind of web of Acton Academies get started? Well, Mike, it really started as a an experiment. Um, we I walked in to see our daughter's uh, middle school teacher, who was a, a fine math teacher. Our boys were uh, both about to move from Montessori into traditional school, and I asked him, you know, how soon, how quickly should we transition them? And and he said immediately. And I asked why, and he said, because once they've had that kind of freedom, they're not going to like sitting at a desk and being talked at all day. And before I could even, you know, thought about it, I said, well, I don't blame them. And he looked down for the longest time, and I thought it offended him. And he looked up, and he shook his head, and he very quietly said, um, I don't either. <laughs> and 
I went home that day and I, and I really respected this man. And I told Laura, I said, you know, he was sending me a message. And that was very clear. Um, we're done. We're either going to homeschool, we're going to start our own school. But I thought of those two beautiful boys and, and you know, how vivacious they were and curious. I said, I'm just not going to put them um, in, in a traditional school. We're not doing it. So that was the start of Acton Academy with seven uh, brave young souls and a handful of families really starting with a blank sheet of paper and reimagining what learning could be like and, and, and really not even school, but really what learning could be like. We had no earthly idea we would end up starting a, uh, going from an elementary studio to a middle school studio and then a, a launch pad, which is our word for high school, or that it would spark, uh, again, accidentally, this whole network of acting schools around, uh, around the world. And now you were, um, judging from your bio, uh, quite busy at the time that all of this was happening. I see serial, entrepreneur, the Acton MBA program, all of these things that you're involved with. So how, how did you make the time to, to embark on this endeavor? Well, I'm really glad you asked that because I better be clear about this. My wife is the one that really started acting. Uh, uh, Laura's, Laura's new terrific book, by the way, Courage to Grow, is out. It's really the origin story of Acton. Um, and I think it's now got... Uh, 82 five-star ratings on Amazon. It's a terrific read about how we all got started. But it was really, you know, we started it together, but she did all the heavy lifting. Um, I got called in uh, to become the middle school guide, which is our work for teacher, uh, because we we ended up firing the person we'd hired about a week before school started. And so I raised my hand and became the middle school guide, and then, and then all, later the launch pad, uh, high school and middle school guide. So I was kind of drafted. Uh, I got a battlefield promotion. <laughs> but it was really her idea to start the school, and she's the one that got it all started. And I was just along for uh, you know helping think about when you start a blank sheet of paper what kind of experiments you might try. That's great. So if if we think of this from the perspective of a student, so what is the student experience at an Acton Academy? Sure. So um, our promises are very clear. Uh, we we expect each and every person that enters our doorway, whether it's a young person or a guide or a parent to be on a hero's journey and to find a calling that will change the world. So we're very clear about that. So when you walk into this environment, um, you know, you are walking in with the expectation that you're a genius. And by genius, by the way, I do not mean 180 IQ. Often people will say, well, not everyone's a genius. So we'll look up the word. The word doesn't say 180 IQ. The word means having a special talent. So when you walk in, you are treated um, like a special person who deserves great deep respect, can really take charge of your own learning as early as six or seven. And truthfully, a learner-driven community, which is our word for what we do, is really not a school. It's a place where people learn, and um, it's, it, it's, not, it, it's a mistake to think of it in any way like a traditional school because it doesn't function that way. It's more like being at Google than it is like being at a school. So the when it comes to things like a student's schedule or their coursework, so what what does that look like? Um, so in the morning, you would choose uh, during course skills time, which would typically be fairly quiet. You would choose whether you wanted to do math today on Khan Academy or SD Math or Dreambox if you were younger. Um, you might choose to read a deep book, a life-changing book, so you might pick up Anything from Harry Potter, uh, depending on where you were in your reading, to War and Peace. Uh, you might decide to be instead of that, you're actually going to work on a genre project on writing. 
and you would probably have a critique from one of your uh, studio mates that you needed to deliver for them, and you might have a piece you wanted to be critiqued. Uh, that would be in the morning. Uh, you might also, depending on the day, have a civilization Socratic discussion where uh, one of your peers led a discussion on whether Machiavelli was, uh, uh, let's say, evil and a genius or um, confused and, um, and good. And so you might have that whole Socratic discussion going, or in the afternoon, you would likely be on a quest. So you would be on a narrative-based series of challenges. Maybe you're Thomas Edison in his Menlo Park lab working on electricity experiments, and you're preparing after a six-week um, series of these challenges in this narrative, you're going to have a public exhibition. And not like a science fair, you're going to actually have to deliver something to the public when they show up that was worth their time to come. So it's these quests are, I mean, the whole the whole series of the way it works is you're on a six-week sprint towards a public exhibition. And in the morning, you're working on core skills. In the afternoon, you're working on these quests. And um, And here's the kind of crazy part. It may be an entire week goes by and no adult even walks in the studio. This is all being led by young people themselves who are delivering the challenges, who are conducting Socratic um, discussions. Um, so it's very, very, very student-driven. That's amazing. Now, I would imagine, though, you know, the adults that are in the building, the teachers or the, the middle school guy or the, the terminology that you have for it, it would take a kind of a, a special type of person to be able to facilitate that kind of learning and know when to when to offer a helping hand and know when to stand back. So I'm, I'm curious, where do you get your, your teachers or your school leaders? What do you look for when you're, when you're finding these people? How do you support them, help them develop professionally? All the sort of stuff that we think around finding really high-quality educators. Well, we don't do that. Um, so this is back where you really can't think of this as a school. A, a guide, in our view, is more like a game maker. So your job is to set up uh, an interesting end of game state. You know, it might be a reward, but it might be that you've uh, leveled up in a role. Uh, you're given a series of challenges. Uh, there's some sort of extrinsic and intrinsic uh, rewards, just like a regular game. And so our challenge, is, you know, our goal as guides is to get out of the way as quickly as possible and to have the young people become game makers for themselves. So there's, um, you know, literally, you cannot, as an adult in the studio, ever answer a question, ever. It's one of the few, like, do not do's. Sure. You can offer choices, uh, like a Montessori guide in some cases might offer choices, or maybe a um, outward bound instructor might offer you challenges. But you really, we never, uh, our, our young people have millions of experts. They have Sal Khan as an expert. They have uh, mentors and apprenticeships, so they have adults, lots of adults in their life, but they have no authority figure uh, in the studio that's you know, doing anything other than offering them some sort of series of challenges to play. And so now, are students in the studio five days a week? Is it a kind of normal school day? Is it a, is it a hybrid? Is it a mix? What, is, what does that look like? Uh, they, they are typically, if they're not traveling or out on an apprenticeship, they are in, in the studios five days a week. Uh, now, they may be wandering outside and looking at the clouds. They may be, you know, just like at Google, you don't have to be inside your office all day. Sure. But, yes, it, it is a normal five-day, you know, 8, 8.30 a.m. is the first launch. 
uh, which might be a guide led or might be a, a, an eagle led. Eagles are our mascots, so we call it the fur tip as eagles, but it might sure. be an eagle led launch. And then by 3.15, you're finished. Uh, no homework, no tests, no grades. However, you do have to deliver badges, and the badges are peer reviewed and you know have to be of excellent quality or the badge doesn't pass. So there's no grades, but everything has to be done to a level of excellence or it doesn't count. But those excellent standards are set by the young people themselves. So now, how many Acton Academies are around the country, around the world now? How many students are participating? Yeah, so as of today, we have 67 Acton affiliates. Um, and again, this is kind of by accident. We let one friend open one, and then a second friend open one, and suddenly there was a flood. But there's 67 Actons around the world today. Uh, this counts about right, but I think in 13 countries, 24 states and provinces, um, probably 50 cities. Uh, we'll open another, I think we'll have 150 open in total by December. And we have over 8,000 applications for parents who want to open one. So, so our big challenge now is, you know, continuing to pick very quality owners of these affiliates and um, and equipping parents to launch their own. But we have a we have a gigantic backlog that we really can't service right now. And then, and how do you look at um, opening these new? Do you all have pretty tight controls over? Um, the type of learning environment or who gets involved? Is it is it looser where they're able to kind of shape it to meet their own needs? H- how do you think about that? Yeah, so we have uh, very tight controls in, a, in, a, in an odd way. Um, we tend to only award affiliates to parents who are going to put their own, uh, their own young, young people, their own children in the academy. Uh, we almost always only award to people who have either run serious projects or have started their own business. And uh, we tend to look for people who have trusted networks. So there's somebody that everyone in the community looks up to. So when they say, I'm going to try this new form of learning, they have credibility. Uh, As far as as quality control, every actin has to make the same promises to their families that we make, and they have to make them publicly and all the time. And at our actin and every other actin, every week, a customer satisfaction survey, a net promoter survey goes out and it says, would you recommend Acton Academy to your friends and family? One one to five scale. And uh, then there's room for comments. All of that is open to the public. In other words, you could go read every Acton Academy's feedback if you wanted to, um, for ours, for other ones. And our rule is, if you're not having very high customer satisfaction ratings, we're going to remove the name from your school. So we're trusting parents and young people when, when you make them very clear promises that they can judge whether they're learning or not. So that that leads me to sort of my next question that I, I'm interested in. So there's no grades. There's there's no tests. Um, so just how do you measure success? How do you know if what you are doing is working? Well, a couple of ways. Uh, the most uninteresting way is once a year we'll take, uh, used to be the Stanford 10 uh, achievement test, and now they've kind of phased those out, so we're taking the Iowa test. So just to kind of make sure that the basics are being covered and, you know, that, that we're, we're not doing something too far off the, off, you know, that something's going on, we take those tests. And we're seeing, you know, we're seeing on average uh, the young people move two to two and a half grade levels uh, per year. 
uh, every year until they max out the test. So we look at that and we say, okay, at least that's working. Now we can relax. Uh, there's all sorts of ways we measure effort and um, or that they measure effort, I should say, with each other. They do 360 peer reviews for measuring who's being warm-minded and tough-minded and, and, uh, tough and warm-hearted in the studio as, as kind of leaders. Uh, the badges certainly measure excellence, and anyone can look at your badge. So there's all sorts of ways, but this stuff is really interesting, the self-governance and the self-determination. You know, I would say the best way to measure that is is go to Facebook, Atkins Facebook Live, where just uh, this week we did a open house and watch the young people on the panel think and respond and, you know, see if that's what you think young people should look like. Because because the things that are really interesting in self-management, self-governance, you can't measure um, empirically. And, that, and that's what matters. I think that's right. And I think so. So one of the things that as you're describing so much of this, I mean, from how you look at who's going to open a school, you know, I, I think it's fascinating that it's parents putting in their oh, their own children, putting their money where their mouth is and looking for folks who've run serious projects or started businesses, have these trusted networks, um, using these types of 360 peer analysis. I mean, this is very different than the kind of dominant educational model, even in, I think, in many places that would be considered, uh, if you want to use the term progressive or sort of outside of the box schooling sure. uh, method. So so my question is, I would imagine, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you, know, you deal with a fair bit of skepticism. Um, there are these kind of established patterns, routines, cultures, and education, and many of the things that you're doing is kind of a fundamental challenge to that. Um, so I guess what I would be sort of interested in from, from maybe the perspective of parents who are interested or other people when you talk to these, what are some common things that people just can't seem to wrap their mind around? And, and, and how do you talk them through it? Sure. So, um, I, I mean, the first thing you're seeing is we're not really in the education reform business. And I think there's a hundred different models that'll work. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm deeply, I'm a good friend of Sal Khan's. I love Khan Lab School. It's different than what we do. Um, I think Maria Montessori was a genius. I love what Summit Public Schools is doing. So, you know, we, we, we love what a lot of different people's models are doing. We're just a different model. So, we're not really in the ed reform business. We're in the serving parents and young people who want to learn business. So we don't really get involved in those kind of battles. And, you know, you'll hear people come in and say, well, you, you know, you have to have grades or you need to have more standardized tests. We just don't get in those arguments. If, if you believe that, we're not the right place. And so, so it's, you know, we're not trying to convert people. We're not trying to start a movement. We're not trying to do anything other than serve the parents who want what we're offering. And um, we just don't get in a lot of debates about it. And, and I'm not being smug. I mean, it's just like we, we, if people think we're wrong, I agree with them. I think we're probably wrong, too. <laughs> I think we've probably figured out 15% of this model. And literally, while I've been on this phone call and been on this podcast with you, we probably had three suggestions from our 67 current owners on our uh, Google forum saying, hey, I tried this in the studio today, and this worked, and this didn't. So we're iterating so quickly to change things and improve them, that if somebody thinks we're doing it wrong, I would wholeheartedly agree with them. <laughs> totally agree with them. We, <laughs> we've probably screwed most of it up, and we're going to fix it. And, you know, hopefully, and when I say we, it'll be one of these owners in Malaysia or Peru or uh, Oklahoma City 
is going to come up with a new thing we're going to try, and we're just going to try new things until we find more than the work. So, so we're not in the battle of, gosh, you know, bashing traditional education. I'm, I'm a product of public schools, love public schools. Um, we're just trying something new that's a grand experiment for people who want to try it. Well, I think that's a fascinating tack to take, and I think something that the broader, if you want to call it, school choice movement or any of those things could actually learn from, that at the core, it's about creating wonderful learning environments for children. Um, and if that was more front and center as opposed to a lot of this kind of political hand fighting, it would be interesting to see how the kind of contours of, of that debate would change. But, but I am curious, just as a kind of policy person myself, I mean, are there ways in which federal policy or state policy or local policies intersect with your schools? Like, are there policies that make your life more difficult? Are there policies that, that make it such that you can operate in some states or some countries and not other ones? Yeah, I, I would say, and again, we don't, you know, we, when an owner comes to us, we say we can't advise you uh, on the regulatory issues, either educational regulation in your state or your country, for that matter. Um, or, you know, the local regulations about health and safety of fire, you need to go figure those out because, as you point out, they vary state to state. Generally, we find the states and the countries that are friendly with homeschoolers, um, you know, are friendly with Acton, and so that we can, you know, we can coexist in those models. And the states that aren't friendly to that, um, we just aren't in right now. I mean, so, so again, we're not, you know, we're not going down to state legislature and trying to change rules. Uh, but generally, the states that are friendly to homeschooling and experimentation, you know, it's just kind of common sense, makes sense for Atkins. And the ones that aren't, uh, we, you know, we're going to tip our hat to the homeschoolers and the innovators. And when they can change public policy, hopefully some parents will open an Acton there. Sure. And so now what is tuition at, at, at Acton Academy? Yeah, tuition varies from across the network because people can, you know, set it up for, for different rates depending on what they're doing. Um our tuition is ten thousand dollars a year. We just made that up. Um, some actions charge as little as uh, thirty five hundred dollars a year, and other ones charge as much as um, twenty thousand dollars a year. So it, it you know it, it varies depending on uh, the goals of the parents and you know what kind of facilities you have. We're increasingly convinced that we can drive the cost down to about twenty five hundred dollars per student per year including facilities. So that's kind of our goal is just to see if the model will support that. But we have a lot of owners who couldn't care less about that. <laughs> Their parents are sure. willing to pay 6,500. And, you know, if that's competitive with a good Catholic uh, private school or, you know, or something parents can afford or scholarship, then they'll charge 6,500. So we're, again, we're staying kind of out of that. We're interested in driving the cost of the model down just as an experiment. But that's only our one act, and, and other actors are pursuing different kinds of cost models. Sure. So I want to close with two questions, and I think one one leads into what you just uh, said there, one kind of looking forward and one kind of looking backward. So I'll start with the forward-looking question, and that is, what do you think the next year holds, the next five years, the next 10 years for Acton? I know you had mentioned the desire or the, the possibility of being up to 150 schools, is that going to become 250? Is that going to become 350? What, what are the, in the kind of short, medium, and slightly longer term hold for, for Acton? Well, I'm stunned we have one. So, so <laughs> you know, the, the fact that we have people that want to open them, um, we're not trying to start 
thousands of schools. We're not, we're just going to try to satisfy the, the customers that we have. And I don't know where that's going to lead. I mean, I, I would be surprised by now, given the demand and early success, we won't have several hundred. Um, who knows, maybe we'll have a thousand or even a couple of thousand. How we deliver and you know how the model continues to evolve is is still a mystery. And so I don't think we know that. And I'm just grateful to have one. So we're not trying to go out and have a thousand. Frankly, if we had a thousand, it would still be, you know, one tenth of one percent of the market. <laughs> so it's not going to bother anybody. <laughs> so so I, I don't really have an answer. Other than we're getting prepared to have a lot more and to serve a network and have the you know, ability to create new learning challenges and share them with the network. We're getting prepared to have more because that's only good stewardship, but I don't necessarily expect that to happen. We're just going to see where it goes. That's great. And so my last question, looking backwards, if you could go back in time to when you started all of this and give yourself one piece of advice, and, and if you want to go with more than one piece of advice, that's, that's fine as well. But if you could go back and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, the one piece of advice is that young people are capable of far more than we've ever imagined. Absolutely, they're capable of 10, if not 100 times more than we can imagine, and we should treat them with that kind of respect. And, and I don't mean, look, they're still young people. They're still learning. It's not Lord of the Flies. They don't get to do anything they want. Acton has you know, enormous amounts of freedom and responsibility built into the systems. But at the end of the day, if you treat young people with the proper respect, they're not cogs to be created into productive citizens. Or they're, they're heroes on a hero's journey. They're individual geniuses. And if you treat them with that respect, more often than not, they'll, they'll respond and they will do things that will just quite simply amaze you. Well, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for ending with that. I think that's a, a great challenge to all of the educators and folks that are involved that are listening to this podcast. But Jeff Sandifer, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Mike. Wow, what a fun conversation. Um, Such an interesting perspective. And part of the reason that I wanted to do this podcast and and that we're putting it out um, is that we want to find people that look at education, look at schooling from just a completely new lens that don't – I don't know if you even uh, kind of heard me as I was talking through trying to say like, well, what about like teachers and what about all of these things, that kind of normal grammar of schooling that that we're used to hearing about. And it was so cool that at every point he's sort of like, nope, we we think about this differently. We have a totally different approach to it. So hopefully that was thought-provoking for all of you. Like I said at the beginning, you know, if you're interested in um, knowing more um, Laura Sandifer's book, Courage to Grow, How Acton Academy Turns Learning Upside Down, um, gives more details there. But a really enjoyable, thought-provoking conversation. Hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. As always, uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, please, please, please subscribe to our podcast. Uh, any of the places where you get podcast subscriptions, make sure to check it out. Sign up for our emails. Um, you can customize your email profile to you to get all of the information If you're interested in cool and innovative schooling, if you're interested in research, if you're interested in all of the goings on in the school choice movement, please make sure to do that. And we can have hot, fresh content sent directly to you at the time of your choosing. Thanks so much for listening.